Entertainment History 101. Extra credit. Hey guys, it's Fred. Now what you're about to hear is the uh, panel we did at the Midwest Gaming Classic with myself and uh, Ken Sushi X Williams and Trickman Terry Minich. Now I should point out that you can tell from the audio quality that we're in like a live crowd. I'm using a unidirectional mic because there was no microphone out from, or uh, sorry, recording out, auxiliary out from the mixing board. And uh, it's a little bit difficult to hear Terry and Ken. And I apologize for that. But any attempts I did to amplify the sound uh, just kind of blurted everybody else out, uh, including the people asking the questions and myself. Um, and therefore uh, caused a lot of clipping and whatnot. So I didn't want to deal with that. So um, this is the best we can do. I hope you can hear it okay on your portable devices. If you cannot, you may have to open it up, you know, on a computer or something. It sounds okay on mine, but hopefully, you know, this helps you guys out. Anyway, without further ado, here's the panel from Midwest Gaming Classic 2015. Hello everybody, how's everybody doing today? Thank you. Welcome to the Midwest Gaming Classic 2015. Um, my name is Fred Rojas. I do a website called Gaming History 101. And we kind of were born after Retronauts kind of faded out. Somebody said, if you want this to continue, just do it yourself. So I decided to go out and do that. So uh, the website is GamingHistory101.com. Our podcast is pretty much what we're best known for. Um, and this presentation today um, with uh, my very honored guests, um, is going to give you kind of a feeling for how our uh, podcast runs. It's kind of conversational, and we like to reflect more on popular culture rather than talking about what it's like playing video games. Because let's face it, if you want to go play them, you'll just go get them and play them. So so we'll do a... Uh, today's presentation is about uh, video game magazines of the 80s and 90s. I do have to apologize. I am focusing more on the early 90s, not the late 90s, because that's when everything started becoming genre-specific. So... I figured for an hour presentation we would probably scale it back. So I also want to remind everybody that there are plenty of magazines that are not included in this presentation. Um, we just had to pick some heavy hitters. And uh, these are only domestic publications, so only US publications. There's lots of great European and uh, Japanese publications out there as well to check out. But uh, all right, well, you know who I am. And you might know these two gentlemen that are uh, joining me um, on my right. But one of them is. Uh, Terry Minich, known as uh, Trickman Terry, and of course Ken Williams, also known as Sushi X. Both of them wrote for Electronic Gaming Monthly, and I have read many of their things over the years. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So as I had said, video game magazines of the '80s and '90s. This is not a very large visual presentation. The other thing I do have to apologize for is uh, magazines not the same resolution as monitors. So uh, in the interest of letting everyone see them, I did blow them out. They're going to look terrible. They're going to look like they have not been to the gym for a while. So just bear with me on that. But uh, anyway, all right. Just give me one quick second. Thought of everything except for my notes. All righty. So the, the first magazine we're going to be talking about today is uh, known as Atari Age. Now, many of you may know it as a website, but it did start off um, in uh, early 1982 um, as kind of a newsletter 
for f uh, members of uh, Atari's fan club. I believe they called it the Fun Club, but uh, it cost a dollar, and you would get this newsletter. Um, and uh, this is kind of an early precursor to what we will later see Nintendo do in uh, the, the late 1980s uh, to reach out to its audience. Um, issues were approximately uh, 25 to 40 pages. Um, it only ran for about two years until April 1984. Uh, you may or may not be aware there was a little bit of a uh, commercial problem with video games uh, in the United States after that time. So due to somewhat the crash, that was one factor. But another major factor, as far as I understand, was that Atari was sold to Warner and the, that media group decided to discontinue the club. So that, that definitely is a larger part of it. But um, for the most part, they contained you know, articles and some reviews and a lot of advertising. And it was mostly about getting people excited about Atari and purchasing the cartridges. Um, you can go back and look at some of these issues, and you will see that they have checklists and order forms. They are ready to sell you Atari carts uh, at will. Um, they do have a letter section. And I think what I found most intriguing about this letter section was most of the questions were, how do I play this game? In the first issue, everybody's asking, what am I supposed to be doing in adventure? I am a block, there's a duck, what's going on? So I, I thought that was pretty clever. And so a lot of the letter section was just telling you what the game translated to versus the box art. Um, the other thing is uh, the entire run of Atari Age is available online in an archive. Um, I will mention it really briefly right now. I have captured these archives for you so you can get direct links. If you go to GamingHistory101.com forward slash MGC for Midwest Gaming Classic, all of these links are here and a couple of other factors. So if you want to check them out, definitely do it. Also, they are, are great reads if you can uh, find them at the various vendors and out and about. Um, did either of you gentlemen uh, read Atari Age? Did you have a whole lot of familiarity with it? Yeah, I was close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, from what I'm told, um, especially when Atari was reigning supreme in those early '80s, um, it, it was just kind of a no-brainer. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, a dollar was affordable for most people. Uh, plus, they also sold you discounted prices on the carts, so it didn't hurt. But uh, all right, moving on. Um, I should probably point out that uh, near to the end of the presentation, we're going to go a little EGM-centric because of our guests. So. Um, so that's where we're going to close with. But the next one up was Electronic Fun with Computers and Games. Now this only had an 18-issue print run. It was monthly, and it started in late 82 and ended in May 84. So possibly for factors that I discussed earlier, that may have something to do with it. Um, I honestly don't know much about the uh, business practices. And so the commercial viability may have had something to do with it as well. Um, What's interesting about this is they mostly covered computer gaming, um, but they did focus uh, largely on domestic products. They also did a lot of Atari, Intellivision, ColecoVision, and uh, arcade gaming. So um, issues were pretty large. They were 100-page issues. Um, they had lots of reviews. They had a Hall of Fame. They had uh, some interesting interviews. Uh, they're actually very good reads if you want to look up some historical documentation. Um, and uh, they did tech blogs, opinion pieces, letters. They even sometimes gave out basic programs. So any of you uh, basic programmers out there typing in your own games in order to get them to play, one character screws the whole thing up. It's great. Um, but uh, they were clearly um, not owned by any one manufacturer or focusing on any one product. They were trying to be very potpourri. Um, but uh, ads from various sources would appear. So you could definitely tell they had a market there. 
Um, and again, this is another one where the entire run is available in that archive, as I discussed. Um, any of you guys uh, have any experience with this particular magazine? I think I actually looked and saw a few of these. I remember as a kid, my mom, who was a fourth grade teacher, uh, brought home a, uh, a TRS-80, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I did with it was to work with the programming language available at the time on it. And I created a, do you remember the, the Pac-Man sequence with the Pac-Man oh, yeah. going back and forth with the ghosts? So yeah. I actually did that. I oh, created that's fantastic. That. So yeah, I, and it was one of the. I don't know if it was this magazine, but it was one similar to that where it actually explained how to animate a character going across. And that was my first programming experience was doing that. That's excellent. Yeah, I remember doing a couple of things with the uh, Commodore 64. Although I don't think I had a demo that was as cool as Pac-Man running around with ghosts. But uh, but yeah, it was definitely very cool to see. And it was you know at this point I felt it was very hobbyist. Like people were like, okay, you've got these computers. If you want to learn how to do it, let's go for it. You know, and, and, and again, I'm not great with basic, but, uh, but you know, it, it taught me early syntax, if-then statements and whatnot. Another reason I bring this up is, as you can see on this cover here, it says best games of 83. There's kind of a hearkening to a lot of what will happen in the 90s, especially EGM and their buyer's guides and things like that. So uh, this was one of the first places where I got to see it, um, and it is very cool. So, um, But uh, all right, moving on. Computer gaming world. Now this one's probably the longest running and most popular of the publications we'll be talking about from the 80s. Had a massive 268 issue print run. Uh, it started in November, December of 1981. It went bi-monthly till 1986. Then it goes like, I guess I would say semi-monthly. You get nine issues um, every single year. And then uh, eventually it does go full-blown monthly in January 1988. Um, it starts off, especially with this issue number one, as, I mean, this is computer-focused as it gets. It, it, it kind of ignores the console market almost completely. Um, I don't even see much arcade coverage when I read through some of these issues. Um, but again, it starts at, at a very meager 40 pages, but especially, it's, it's very tech-heavy. It's a, it's a niche magazine through and through. It's explaining to you, you know, kind of, I think in one of them it explains to you how a Commodore 64 cart is built and how you rewire it and everything. Um, but, uh, and then, as you were talking about, it does have a lot of uh, programming you can do. The issues start becoming larger. Um, I think some of the more mainstream issues were getting over 100 pages. Um, and, uh, uh, and then, out of nowhere, it goes from this hardcore hobbyist thing to when it goes monthly in uh, 88, um, it really just becomes more like what we know of as a traditional gaming magazine. Um, it goes to reviews, rumors, tips, letters, previews all that kind of fun stuff. But in the early days, especially if you're a tech junkie for you know, those, those classic you know, computers that predate the Intel chips and whatnot, um, it, it's got tons of great information, great interviews, things like that. Uh, it's definitely worth looking at, and yet again, it does have its own archive that is available uh, in there. Uh, did you guys do any uh, reading with the Computer Gaming World? Uh, not that one. By that time, I was uh, more interested in girls. But yeah, and again, this was this was very. You know, I know a lot of people were were console gamers. Uh, I definitely was, so um, I focused a little bit more on that. Um, and last for our, our our magazines of the '80s, we have Electronic Games. I should point out there, while they have similar titles, there is no correlation to that on Electronic Gaming Monthly. Um, it had a 71 issue print run. It was monthly from winter 1981 until its final issue in October 92, oh, I'm sorry, until its final issue in August 85, and then it kind of drops off. 
uh, because it did focus on console games. So the crash kind of, this was definitely the most directly affected by it. But it comes back when the 16-bit generation hits and you start seeing even kind of the 32-bit generation. In the mid-90s, we almost get like a mini crash with all those new CD consoles coming out. Um, it, it comes back to do lots of coverage, mostly on the 16-bit games. Um, what I like about this is it kind of sets the template for what we'll see as far as content in 90s magazines. However, 90s magazines throw their little 90s spin on it, which I'll get to in a sec, um, that kind of switches it up. But for, for initially, it does your reviews, your previews, your letters, all that fun stuff. I did love that in issue number one, they've got a, uh, a very cool interview with David Crane. Uh, definitely somebody you know, somebody you should check out. Um, they even have buying guides. Uh, they, they do software encyclopedias to let you know kind of what's out. Um, but they are definitely console focused. Um, mostly the Atari VCS and then definitely Sega Genesis, Super Nintendo, maybe some of the portal, portable consoles and then some of the CD consoles uh, in their second run. Um, but uh, uh, again, the, the biggest significance here is this is kind of a preview of what most gaming magazines will become in the 90s. So um, did you guys read a whole lot of electronic games? Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, I was born into like the Commodore 64 at the time. Computer uh, that was, was one of my favorite games. Oh, yes. Where I, you know, that, that, that also had some, some code to uh, type in the back. And my favorite one was you could use the Commodore tape player to actually record your voice and get it on there. Oh, that's and, cool. And that was the coolest program I, I, I programmed in, and it actually worked. It was very, very scratchy. <laughs> yeah. But it worked. So. Uh, like I said, uh, Commodore 64 was actually capable of doing voices relatively well for the time. Yeah. Um, in the uh, next door, I believe it's in the museum, um, you can see the, uh, the original Ghostbusters playing on a Commodore 64, and you definitely want to check out that title screen. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, so this, this kind of culminates to a lot of what we saw in, in, the, in the mid to late 80s, mostly around consoles, um, as, as the guests have already mentioned. There are many other magazines to check out. Um, and again, I think this one I also have an archive of. I'm not sure. You can check the, the links. But what will happen after this is we will go into the 90s. And when we come into the 90s, this is, this is post-Nintendo. In fact, Nintendo is... Aside from Nintendo Power, which is the next magazine we'll get to, um, they're not the the original NES is not a major part of a lot of the content. Um, it focuses a little bit more. I mean, maybe at the end there, but it's mostly about the 16-bit generation. This is where you give rise um, to uh, something I think is very important to games media and something that holds true today. In fact, even though we've now jumped mostly to online, they're still doing it, which is it's all about personality. And some magazines did it better than others, but uh, this is where you start to get to know your writers. It's, it, it is important to know the game, but hearing it from certain writers is also equally important. You, you kind of get to know them, this connection with their community. Um, and, uh, and, and while that, for the most part, doesn't hold true with the next magazine, Nintendo Power, um, it did give you that feeling that you were in touch with Nintendo. Um, so, uh, real quick, Nintendo Power comes about um, because in 1987, Nintendo started what they called the Fun Club. This was a Howard Phillips joint. He was kind of the PR rep for Nintendo. You can somewhat think of him as the Reggie fils of his time. He is often mistaken for uh, Nintendo of America CEO Howard Lincoln, who did a lot of things for Nintendo, but he's not kind of part of this, so this is Howard Phillips. Um, 
And uh, they started the Nintendo Fun Club. And what this was was you would fill out a registration card with certain games. The one I know the most is probably Punch-Out, because of Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Uh, Doc, when he's rubbing your shoulders, will literally tell you to go join the Fun Club. Uh, he won't tell you how, but he'll tell you you got to go hunt it down and join it. Um, but what was cool about it was... Uh, it, it lets you know about Nintendo products coming up. It was very much a newsletter, much like um, like even thinner than Atari age as it started off. Um, and it was mostly just to sell you games. And it lets you know what was coming out because there weren't release schedules, there was no pre-ordering, there was nothing like that. So it was, and they and they did go a little Japanese centric because you know J Japan got basically everything a year or two before we did. So that was the first place you got to see you know Legend of Zelda and various other games. So. Um, so what they did was they went uh, four quarterly issues in 87, I think leading into 88, they had three bi-monthly issues, and then in the summer of 88, they full-blown launched Nintendo Power. And Nintendo Power was a full video game magazine with a subscription, it cost money, and of course it was run completely by Nintendo so they could focus on exactly what they wanted you to see and what they wanted you to buy. Now to be, to be fair, it's not as notorious as it sounds, but I've definitely heard some things, and if you've done any research on Nintendo business practices, we definitely have an episode on that. Um, they did some things to help uh, keep hold of the market that they were in, and uh, this was definitely part of it. Some publishers had some discussions about what this was like, but what they started off with was issue number one had a 3.6 million print run. They sent it out to everybody who was part of the Fun Club, and they got into various libraries, bookmobiles, various things like that. And uh, they actually got a return of more than a million subscribers. So immediately you have an audience there. And from that point on, I mean, it's it spanned into a pretty decent magazine. 285 issue print run monthly. Um, it went all the way to 2007. Issue 221 is the last issue that Nintendo actually produces. Um, and then it sold to Future Publishing. You may know them from um, official PlayStation Magazine, official Xbox Magazine. Only made sense they pick up Nintendo Power to replace their official Nintendo Magazine. Um, and again, I think the biggest thing with this was this is where you start to mildly see personalities because Howard Lincoln's in these comics. Uh, he, or he actually does comics in it, and he's in there, and he's speaking to you. And one of the most clever ways he does it is through his little cartoon character, Nestor, who is kind of like his buddy, and they have Howard and Nestor comics in there. But Nestor was kind of the spokesman, a mascot, if you will, for Nintendo Power. And that's really how Nintendo tried to connect with their audiences. I think Nestor might have been a product of his time. I don't remember connecting too much with him, but apparently he was quite popular, and even today um, they're trying to resurrect those comics in a Kickstarter and whatnot. So, um, But it was a really good opportunity for you to see some stuff. I do remember the Nintendo Power was the only place you could see early versions of Mario 3. You know, And of course they reminded you to go see The Wizard that, that holiday season and stuff. But uh, anyway... Um, do you guys have any uh, experience with Nintendo Power? <laughs> yeah, I was definitely a subscriber of Nintendo Power. That was, you know, I remember all the Nestor comics and stuff yeah. like that. It was probably one of my favorite things to read. It was funny. You know? yeah. yeah, oh no, they were very funny. I didn't mean to downplay the, the Nestor comics. So. I mean, that's where you got most of the personalities out of that. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah that's, that's what I would say as well. And again, when you read the reviews, it was kind of interesting because they would like choose what to review sometimes. So like, if a really bad Nintendo game came out that was kind of getting slammed, yeah, you won't see that. It didn't happen to show up in Nintendo Power. It's weird. Uh, they they had limited content space, but um, but yeah, I, I really definitely liked it. Um, I guess the other question was Nintendo Power was to a certain extent a competitor to Electronic Gaming Monthly. Did you guys 
and I guess this is an overall question, did you guys focus too much on what the competition was doing? No. I didn't think didn't so. Really yeah. <laughs> I've heard, well, I, I, it's true, like I've heard random rumblings from other publications that seem to go back and forth. I know GamePro got into a little bit of a tiff with Insight or something going back and forth, but uh, I had never heard. GamePro sucks, what are you talking yeah. about? See? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, we'll be getting into that actually, but uh, <laughs> but but that said, um, yeah, I was always curious as to how much the publications really cared about, you know, the other. I would call it, if anything, I call it a friendly rivalry. Okay. Um, like uh, Mike Wagon would go work for Game Girl. Right. There you go. <laughs> One of ours, he's a traitor. <laughs> we were still really good friends even when he left. So. Excellent, excellent. Um, again, Nintendo Power is cool. I, I brought up this issue because this was the only issue to really garner a whole lot of controversy. Because uh, Simon Belmont's sitting there all decked out with Dracula's head on the cover and everything. But for the most part, Nintendo Power was an all-ages kind of magazine. Um, even the first episode or issue, which was about Mario 2, was all in claymation. So. Uh, you can definitely check those out. I don't have any archives of them for understandable reasons. Nintendo does not want those out. There are nefarious methods for you to get your hands on them or... The best method is just to find them in, you know, mom and pop shops or vintage stores or probably in the vendor area. <laughs> now to GamePro. Um, yes. Uh, I bring up GamePro because uh, GamePro took a little bit of a different approach, in my opinion, uh, to how they spoke to their audiences and whatnot. Um, for starters, it kind of had this reputation as being more of the kids' magazine. Uh, I, I don't... I, I can't speak to that because I was a kid when I was reading it. So, um, it when I was a kid too. see, there you go. Okay, so, and it wasn't. No, it wasn't great. Yeah, I, I agree with you um, uh, that it, it it didn't always convey the right things. They they are rightfully criticized for having more pictures than they have um, you know actual content or opinion on on things. Um, and I know they you know I bring the Bart Simpson issue up because this is kind of what they thought of their audience, or it, so it seems. Complete with a really fun scoring system. And on that uh, archive thing, I've got the scoring system up for an example. I apologize, I don't have it here. Um, where there was basically five different guys, because numbers wasn't something apparently kids could comprehend. They had to have pictures, too. Um, and it was everything from a guy who's like upset that he's got a game, or snoring, or kind of interested. And then, of course, the great, the 5.0, was this guy who is all red, his hair's going everywhere, and his head is exploding. Yeah, basically, like he's, he's really into it. Um, and they kind of broke things down by, by four basic factors. Um, but what I remember about GamePro was uh, there is one thing they did, I think, correctly, even if it was only the meme, which was the pro tip. They were the ones who coined that phrase. Don't get hit. Yes. Now, I will say, I will say, we'll get to this. Uh, Terry's tips were better, but they came up with the, uh, they came up with the idea for, for, for pro tips, which has now become like an internet meme or something. But uh, um, the other thing was uh, good old lame pro. Um, again, I, am I correct? They ripped that somewhat off you guys, because weren't you guys the first ones to do April Fool's jokes? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, it, it wasn't me per se that started that. It okay. Was, it, it was it was a it was an amalgamation of of the, of the editors at, at the time that just decided they wanted to do Simon Belmont. That was that was number, that was number one. Right. Um, and that was even before me. So, but I but we continued the tradition when I came on board, and I was more than happy to comply. <laughs> I can understand that. 
Um, but uh, so yeah, so Lame Pro came. It was like a, a handful of pages, and, and everyone kind of kind of ripped it off. But uh, but I do remember, you know, again, and we'll get to that with uh, with EGM. But most notably is uh, I was one of the many, many, many fooled by the Shang Long trick, uh, which was super mean. Um, and it's even more clever, if you guys haven't looked it up, that uh, they literally, beneath the article about, uh, I guess for people who don't know, they mentioned Shang Long was an unblockable character. It was due to a mistranslation of the Dragon Punch for Ryu's statement. He says, you must defeat Shang Long. I guess it was supposed to be, you must defeat my Dragon Punch, but somebody botched it up in, in translation. And, uh, and so these guys put a character named Shang Long into, uh, into a Street Fighter pick and, and, and there's a story behind that. So, essentially, before that took place, we had gotten the Jam Award for Street Fighter Two, and I was doing the article on it. Well, we had gotten I think, a new version of uh, Photoshop. Uh, everybody's familiar with Photoshop these days. If you ever want to have an, an interesting time, look around and see if you can find Photoshop 1.0. That was released, I think, for free, uh, just to, as a kind of you know, archive. So if you can get it to run, Try playing around with that and we'll see how much fun we had. When we were, that was the first graphics program we were working with with the magazine. And we got a newer version which made it easier to stitch things together uh -huh. um, with different layers and things like that, which is a phenomenal concept. And uh, so I got a bright idea uh, at the end to just create an amalgam character that was just like the ultimate end boss. Yeah. Um, that was hidden, and it was based off the Shang Long, because we're like, who's Shang Long? Who's Shang Long? That's all you would hear in the arcades when you go there. It's like, who's Shang Long? So I'm like, all right, I'll make Shang Long. <laughs> and it was you just did. for fun. It was just, I had a game board, so I could get unlimited frames. I could, I could take all the screens I wanted to be able to stitch together just what I wanted. So the first thing I did is I came up with this flaming dragon punch looking character. It was like a flaming fist or whatever. And I said, since. I think it was, uh, it, was, it was either Martin or Steve, one of those guys that were nearby. I said, here, come here, look at this, look at this, what do you think? And they're like, oh my god, that looks so good. And at the time, we were looking to figure out an April Fool's joke at the time, we didn't have one. So we're like, we're putting that in the magazine. So then I had to come up with more screens to go with it to, to kind of sell it and then make a backstory on how to get to the character because it was a hidden character and how to do it. So. I made it so impossible to do, but it sounds reasonable if you were so good, you could really do it. And we put it on there, and then then we came up with, I don't even remember who came up with it. We are like, well, why did you put it on the same page as the, the contest? Yeah. So you would actually be above, the, the, the trick would be above the contest where you'd have to find the trick for that month. And nobody got it. I think Steve probably did. Nobody got it. It was just like, yeah, it's like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the, the piece of the resistance was when it showed up in, in a overseas magazine as a legit trick, and then Capcom USA calls up and says, is that for real? They're <laughs> <laughs> like, no, 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 no. And then, I, then when the Super came out, and then Akuma was found in there as a hidden character, I'm like, Where's my royalty check? Yeah, I was gonna ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were calling into your office and like, can come here, look. <laughs> we're like, gotta be kidding. <laughs> oh yeah, well with the yeah Kuma and then uh, I apologize, is it Goken? Or? Goken. 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 Yeah. Goki. Yeah. Those were all the different characters. Goki is basically 
Um, but uh, yeah, when, the funny thing is we found out about that when we had that forward in, and I was working on that article. <laughs> so it, it all kind of came came around in a circle. That's it, was, it was really, really cool. So, so uh, and, and never any kickback from Capcom, huh? Oh, no, well, uh, well, yeah, they of course. They pay us for it. They have <laughs> lots of money off of it, so yeah, they love it. Excellent, excellent. Um, yeah, I just, I just remember in hindsight when it, when it was revealed that that was the joke, it was just, it, it just hurt so much more because everybody pointed out, you know, the contest is right there on the same page, and it was, it was fantastic. Um, and and I'll be honest, you guys continued to to trick me um, because uh, I wanted uh, Nimbus Terrafo to be true. Uh, oh, that was that one. I do. Okay. He was, yeah, he was the weird uh, Mortal Kombat character who, uh, it, it was another Photoshop job. Uh, it was only in the Genesis version, apparently, and I think they announced it the same year where the Fergality was discovered in the Genesis Mortal Kombat 2, so it sounded viable, but anyway. Um, but yes, there were plenty of uh, April Fool's jokes, and uh, basically started with, uh, with this crew. Um, moving on, we're going to talk a little bit about game fans, so... <laughs> Yes, game fan. Aside from its shroud of controversy, which I will definitely close with, um, kind of started life. Well, started life as hardcore game fan, and uh, the reason I was reading it was mostly because of imports. Um, I don't know about most people, but the import scene became a little more viable and a little more possible uh, once the 16-bit generation hit. Um, I definitely my first import was Street Fighter II on the Famicom or Super Famicom. Sorry. And uh, and uh, a Japanese uh, Super Famicom. Uh, I remember that being like a huge deal, and it was awesome to do, and it cost so much money. And, but uh, but yeah, and so uh, Game Fan started doing a lot of stuff with uh, imports, uh, as you can see from this little cover shot of Earthworm Jim. Uh, they were very hardcore. Um, they definitely like to put like a an aggressive twist on everything on their covers. Uh, they have made some of the most you know charming characters look very aggressive and, and <laughs> kind of in, inciting violence, much like we see Earthworm Jim here doing. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I remember mostly that these guys had a lot of kind of crazy personalities, and they seemed almost like, and I don't know if you guys had any experience with some of the writers there, but like they were, they were interested in games first, but they also had some artistic edge second. Like some of them drew or did really good paintings, and some of them were good writers, and some of them made music and things like that. And that's why the stories that kind of come out of uh, Game Fan, and I have a, a link to the article in the archive that I put up, but uh, that Hardcore Gaming 101 did about kind of the crazy stories that came out of there, you know, for hitting deadlines. And there's some, uh, some nefarious things going on, such as, you know, illicit drug use and various other fun things. But, uh, uh, and I, who knows what's rumor and what's not. I mean, they, they never claim to know for sure. Um, but I do remember this being a great resource for what to import, what to look at. They did a lot of co-op advertising. Um, in fact, most of their early contracts were based off of it, and it'll bite them pretty hard uh, at the end. Um, it was one of the biggest reasons. Those, those long-standing lawsuits were one of the biggest reasons that they uh, apparently had to shut down the magazine. Um, but, uh, and then there was, of course, uh, in September 95, the, uh, the illustrious article where some very uh, derogatory things were said. Uh, towards the Japanese, and uh, they ate a lot of crow on that. Uh, in fact, I think it shadowed the magazine moving forward, um, maybe even before that, actually. And so with lawsuits aplenty and, uh, and that, um, Game Fan, uh, I think they closed shop after eight years uh, in 2000, um, but, uh, 
Um, it, it definitely has a special place. They're good reads. They're good articles. Um, did you guys have any experience or, or read game fan or hear anything of you know from that camp? I read a few issues. Again, we were so focused on what we were doing, we didn't pay a whole lot of attention to what the other magazines were really up to. You know. That makes sense. Um, so you look behind you. You always look forward. What? Yeah, exactly. You look behind yeah. you. The thing I do remember, though, is they had really big screenshots, and they, and they were and they were and they were pretty good. You know, they, That's definitely yeah. And uh, I also remember that. We kept looking at, at their pages, like whenever they would put type on their backgrounds, we're like, wow, they're using some really funky backgrounds with these things. Yes, their layouts are notorious, I should point that out. Yeah. We're just like, yeah, we kind of played with that, but then we thought, subtle is a little bit better, you could, just just because you could read it. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but then we looked at these and they're like, Okay, whatever they can do. Whatever I mean, reading okay. game, reading game fan, much like the the cover even here. I mean, that's what it was like. It was yeah. in your face. It was bah, we're game fan, you know. And and again, that's not to to crap necessarily on the content because the content I thought was was pretty good. Um, I, I I have to admit bias towards EGM. I was an EGM guy through and through. Um, but I did read some issues of game fan. Never really subscribed. But there were some issues where people were like, "You got to check this out." And I do remember being in. Um, I was in high school when uh, the September 95 issue hit, and people were talking about it. People were like, oh my god, read this article, look what this guy's saying, and stuff like that. So Yeah, I mean, I would say that the screen quality is probably the most memorable thing I can remember. They had really good screenshots, really high quality. Yep. And if you guys want to see some of those, um, the actually the uh, person who started Die Hard Game Fan has been starting to archive those. Um, and since he's the owner of them, I think he, it's totally fine for him to archive those and sell them. So he sells them for like $2 an issue. I think I put a link in there if you want to go check them out. Um, but, uh, but that's kind of really probably the only way you're going to get to see them. But it does give you a, a sneak peek of you know, some of those, those uh, crazy good screens and, and things like that. And especially, yeah, just how they blew them up. Um, they're, they're not that high resolution when they're coming out of the console. So. <laughs> but... Uh, and then we get to the lovely Electronic Gaming Monthly. <laughs> and I had, to, I had to poke fun a little bit because this was a very popular topic for your covers. <laughs> but um, I would say in the 90s, of the magazines that came out, you know, it really was all about the personality at EGM um, and the fact that you got, I mean, to a certain extent, I, I, I'm guessing this is intentional, but it, it did start off having a lot in common with Famitsu Magazine. Um, do you know if that was intentional? Well, I can't really speak for Steve Head and those guys, but yeah, I can say there's definitely a the Japanese magazine influence around. Yeah, and, and Famitsu Magazine is still around today. Um, it's a very long-running magazine. Um, I don't read Japanese, so I haven't really you know done more than just... Uh, finger through a couple of issues, but what I can tell you uh, that I felt you guys got right, um, among many things, was definitely the fact that most of your reviews, at least initially, and I think it went on for quite some time, probably near the 2000 range, um, where four people would review each game and give their score. Um, and so you would kind of get these different personalities giving their different spins on every game that came out. And that must have been a lot of fun for you guys. Uh, yeah, I mean, Sushi X is based off of Taco X. Yes. I mean, it's, it's a pretty direct you know, correlation there. And uh, that lasted for quite a while, I think, until the later 90s. And then they started branching out and started seeing 
you know, other people doing review, like little mini reviews, that kind of stuff. And, mm -hmm. and then it just kind of got, and everybody was doing the reviews. And we, they would like rotate in several of the editors over time. So I've always seen the same four. You know, it got right. more sporadic. And I wasn't a big fan of that myself. I don't know, I think I'd already left. So uh, during my time, it was pretty much just the four, you know. Right. Uh, well, and it was always great to, uh, uh, reading some of your, your reviews when they were uh, maybe not the genre of choice for you or the, your, your speed of game. Well, I know what you're getting at. Like, they, they, uh, I think you were talking about RPGs may not be my favorite. Well, let's be, let's be fair. If it's an action RPG, that type of game, I do like those. There are just certain ones that are just pure strategy numbers and it's boring. I need something more colorful. You know, kid at heart. I don't want to read everything. Um, but, uh, you know, my, my genre of hate is just Game Boy games, period. Flat out. That's me. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't an axe. I still hate them to this day. So, you know, the only time I like to watch them is if they've been colorized and on a big screen with a real controller and not this little tiny thing that gives me a headache when I look at it. So, you know. Well, and not to dig too deep. I, yeah, I seem to remember, I thought you were going to be quite fond of uh, Rise of Foot Clan on Game Boy, and you... I don't remember if you were. It was on Game Boy. Yeah, we're and you didn't much care for it. Yeah, I was like, oh, so she actually took it. Okay. So, um, but moving on, they had lots of personalities. Uh, one of which was the Q Man uh, or Quarter Man, um, and he was known for doing uh, sorry rumors around uh, the rumor mill and uh, pretty decent consistency of right and wrong. Um, but some very good, you know, content came out of that. So much so that I hear that some other publications had gotten into some trouble over. Uh, uh, publishing some things that uh, turned out to not be true, um, but not you guys. I mean, you guys. It was just oh, in the Q man. <laughs> but uh, but I do remember the Q man definitely being. You just wanted to read, and you would hope that anything that was in there was was potentially coming true. You'd find your one thing. You're like, I hope this rumor is real. Um, and then of course there was uh, Trickman Terry, the man behind the strategies and the, and the tips and things like that. So. I did have a quick question for you in terms of that. So, um, did you got like how did you discover these secrets? Were they were they passed along to you? Did you guys just do a lot of thing? I mean, I'm sure you saw patterns. It was, but so I can give, uh, before Terry came on, um, very rarely would a company give us a trick and say, "Try this out, you know, just play with this, and you know, we can publish it." We like something usually that was out already for a while, um, but we actually would sit there and we, since we knew that these things were going in, as like little dev codes and things like that, like level selects and invincibilities and things, we would actually sit there mashing on controllers crazy for like hours until something happened. Then we'd be like, "Oh my God, come here, look at this." I got Sonic floating in the air, and he's, and he's like turned into like this weird garbled thing, you know. And then we'd be doing that, and we'd be like, we'd play with it, and we'd try to remember exactly what we were hitting when we were mashing, and until we finally figured out how to exactly do it. So there was, we did that for Sonic. We oh, I remember the Sonic. We figured, out, figured that out by, on our own. And then um, I remember another one, uh, one of my favorite shooters, Guy Ari's, which I have downstairs. If you guys come down, you can play it on our, on our systems. That one, we found how to do that totally on our own. Nobody helped us with that. Wow. It was, it was just, again, just us mashing. And I think it, it wasn't until the Tricks of the Trade became popular, one of the popular sections, and I guess companies were getting good feedback on this, and it, like made their, it like gave more life to their games. 
they started probably handing some trips actually over. I'll let Terry speak to that because he took that over. Okay. That was somewhat true. <laughs> they, yeah. Sometimes they want. Sometimes they wanted to, and, and other companies were like, "This is shortening our game," and they and they didn't want us to figure that stuff out. Not on the company. Yeah. yeah. I can't imagine what major company would have a big problem with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, uh, one of the many methods uh, of, of getting the tricks was the uh, the reader's letters. The reader's letters would be coming to me in piles, and I would I would have like uh, like like U.S. postal mailboxes filled with letters, and I I still have my special uh, letter opener that I, that I used from day one. <laughs> I still have it in my house. That's excellent. And then, and, and I would just open letters, open letters, open letters, open I opened more letters in the post office, I think, so. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty amazing just to see, like, what people could come up with in that, and that's what would get, uh, you know, people who send them in a free game if, if we use their code. I gotcha. And yeah. so it was just like, you know, like, hey, you could get something free out of, uh, out of doing it. So, so some readers send stuff in, um, other other ways were kind of interesting. You, you mentioned that uh, Japan got a lot of the stuff first, right? So uh, we we had a Japanese liaison that would um, we would we would fax some of, some of the uh, some of the pages for usually the tricks sections of uh, of Japanese magazines, such as Fumitsu and other things to our liaison and say, translate this for us, please. And so we would, we, and so, you know, before it came out here, we would have it in Japan and be like, okay, well, and, and then we would get the EEPROM for the, for the US version, try it on there, ding, it works, Perfect. boom, got it. And, and so, and, and, and uh, Didn't you have to be quiet about it too? You had to be kind of quiet about it. You had to be quiet about it so they wouldn't get it in the back Well, I, I did make, one or two errors where I, I think I remember Lemmings for one of the systems snaps or something like that, where um, after it was after it had worked on the Japanese EEPROM, they went and changed the EEPROM and, and and changed all the codes before before that, and then and and it was all wrong in the magazine. I'm like, oh, oh man, crud. they got wise to you. Yeah, yeah, they got wise to you. And so from then on, I had to put it. I had to put a little disclaimer. Does work on a pre on a preview copy of the oh, right. of, of the cartridge. You know, may not work on final version. I had to put my little disclaimer in there, you know, just to get us not, you know, to stop us getting in trouble. <laughs> Otherwise, you never know what could happen. And I and I had the insight of of figuring out that uh, the the Contra, um, uh, the Alien Wars, Contra Three, the Alien Wars, <laughs> that had a Japanese code that worked. It gave me, I think, thirty men and invincibility and a whole lot of other things. Right. Um, it didn't work on the American version, but I didn't put it in because I was like, let's just see what happens. GamePro put it in, it's working, and I'm like, ah, ah. there you go. <laughs> and I was like, the American version version doesn't work with this, so oh well. <laughs> I didn't, so so that never went in ours, and I was like, see, that's what I got for you know, like researching and making sure it's going to do it. So you know, just, it was just living and learning and figuring it all out. Yeah, I, I mean, I got. I have to say, I was really like that was a great section for me, and and I could see why it was so popular. We we could never figure out how you guys, you know, got ahead of the game on a lot of this stuff. We knew you probably had early copies, but we were just like, how do you like the Sonic Two one? 
like how do you how do you do that? Yeah, some of it was playing around like, yeah. like, like you said it was just like wow that's a heck of a discovery yeah. um but uh and and i think it's important to note and, and probably everybody here knows this but it's definitely important for anybody who's playing modern day games cheating was kind of a, a part of the game world like it wasn't you didn't have to do it it was always optional but it, it, it kind of like you were saying it breathed life into games that i've never comic zone just baffles me without a cheat code like i'm sorry i will fully admit it i cannot get beyond the second stage in that game but the cheat codes were pivotal in me going from potentially renting that game to buying it now i do understand that there were other games that kind of did the reverse but for the most part, those cheats were very important to kind of. Yeah, they, they were fun for the people to figure it out. I mean, Heck yeah, it, they were. It, it some of the some of the first sections that had the readers of the turn tree be like, "All right, let's, let's check out the cheats." <laughs> well, and in the fighter world, like that really sprang eternal. Like where, with just especially midway, you know, initially, but a lot of them did it. You know, just having a lot of fun with hidden stuff. Heck, with Mortal Kombat, I don't know how you you know with that first three games, like what was real, what wasn't. It, it went all over the place. You know, I think Ermac was a really. I think, yeah. uh, if I recall, there was there was a there was a sidebar section called Most Wanted Trick, uh -huh. and there was and there was a picture sent in by some reader. It was, it was just like it was like it was like a Polaroid photo, and and it was so faded, but it said Ermac above it, and we're like, what the heck is that? We never saw that character before, and, and so we scanned it, and we put it in, and we're like, you know, oh, well, Most Wanted Trick, hey, let let you know. It would be really cool if this really was a character in Mortal Kombat, and, and, then, and then suddenly, ah, look at yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> he, could, yeah. He, he does come in the sequels. Or yes, he does. <laughs> yes, he does. So, and, and I, thought that, I thought that was kind of cool. Like, both with the Shanglong and with Ermac, and, and there are probably many other examples of where these publishers and, and developers were reading what was getting put on the page and actually integrating it. I mean, you kind of created a fandom for a character we didn't even know was there. Uh, that's that's pretty cool in my opinion, but uh, yeah, we thought that was that was pretty pretty neat just to see like like oh, something we kind of just made up in our heads or, or or really just wanted to see right the company paid attention to and and actually created a new character around it or something very similar. And yeah. that, that was always very very cool to see. That that was probably one of my favorite things that I remember. Me too, and it was it was it was just a really cool way to connect because the internet wasn't quite right widespread yet. And so that was that was very cool. Now um, I just have like one more quick question. Then I was going to open it up for if anybody else has questions. Probably most likely for the guests. Uh, and I do have prizes for people who ask questions, so get them ready. Um, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I did have one other question, which was how much uh, or how much was it a burden or lack of a burden to do those extensive annual buyers guides? I remember from the nineties. <laughs> Yeah, like 400 oh, pages of geez. content. <laughs> oh, you don't like sleep, do you? Yeah. That's basically what it is. Okay. Um, anytime we have a buyer's guide of any sort, it became a scramble because just because you're doing a buyer's guide, that doesn't mean your normal deadlines go away. So you're doing double, triple work. Um, that's. Uh, I remember one time I was up for 72 hours working on the, the Atari Lynx guide. <laughs> that must have been so much fun for you. Uh, I actually fell asleep on the keyboard. And it was funny, I think somebody from Atari actually had stopped by and I was collapsed on the keyboard and wrapping up like, like this. And I was taking naps under the desk for like 30 minutes and things like that. It was just awful. It was awful. Um, 
Yeah, and I remember, I think that's, uh, that was where, I think that was the one that the Game Pro Sucks was put in there. Oh, uh, there you go. That was in the uh, <laughs> cyber, what was it, the Cyberball article. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, guilty as charged. I was, not in a good, I was not in a good mental state at that point, and no, I didn't get fired for it, even though they said I did. Um, so, yeah. Um, it was it was very hard. We didn't sleep much. We still had fun though, because you still got to play the games and you know just master the games and just play through and take do naps and you know it was just God, that's all you do all day is play games. I mean, how can that be really that bad? If anything, it was just you were just losing sleep. I think that was our biggest problem. You weren't seeing family members anymore and things like that. But yeah, we we, we were like a big family, so we we, we all you know. Got through it, and you know, we were proud of what we put out there. And you can like put down this Chromebook-sized magazine, and you're like, yeah, we did that. You know, that was probably one of the best feelings ever. You know. So. Oh yeah, if you ever get your hands on one of these buyers' guides, you have to see them. You'll you'll totally see what he's talking about. Where I'm sure you guys had no sleep whatsoever. Uh, no, very little. And you'd read through them, and it was just kind of like playing the game yourself, you know? Because <laughs> sometimes, you know, we couldn't buy very many games, so that was kind of how we selected them. But, uh, all right, well, real quick, um, if you don't mind, I'm going to open this up to questions. Uh, gentleman right here. Or, yeah. Quick question about the early 90s. How did you go about doing screen captures for, like, the NES 18-bit and then 16-bit? Well, we had, uh, the technology was really new back then, and this is why we were very impressed with what Dr. Gaming was doing, because they, they had really vibrant shots. It's really good. Um, we were using our Astronauts cards um, in our computers, and they were all Macs. All, this was like the premier capture card on the Mac. You could get like, really expensive, too. Like thousands of dollars. And back then, that was a ton of money. That was like buying a car when you wouldn't buy one of these things. Like we each had one in our machine. So, uh, but they were still really horrible with the blues. They would turn out purple. So it was that whole conversion to CMYK. Anybody knows Photoshop understands. It's very difficult to work with. So, um, plus, even though you would get decent shots, it was, we were still trying to figure out how the interlacing and all that other stuff was working so you would get the right you know, feel for it. But yeah, everything was piped through there. It was all through the connections. I still have a couple of cables. We had specially made cables that would split the signal off. So you had one cable would go to the raft straps, one would go to the, the monitor you were using, and stuff like that. Yeah, it was, I think we actually visited the, the, where they made those. We actually went to the raft straps location, which was uh, in here in Illinois. Uh, it, was, it was really interesting. Yeah, it was, it was uh, interesting working with you know, machines that were lost part of you making a year sometimes. <laughs> Uh, well, good question, um, and uh, here's a Super Famicom Street Fighter 2. Thank you. Uh, all right, um, I'll get you in You said you used to open up uh, the fan mail that came in. Um, what was the weirdest thing you received? A pair of underwear with a brown splotch down the middle, but we could tell it was marker. And, and a can of Spam, which we actually turned into uh, let's see when people would uh, would leave either the publication or or the, or, or the company uh, the next person in line got the can of spam 
<laughs> so we, we just kept you know, passing on the can of spam. It was like, oh no, they, they don't have the can of spam anymore, so, so we just kept passing it on. And it probably got to be like about 10, 15 years old. We probably, who knows who has it now. <laughs> All right, well, for your uh, question, here's a Genesis copy of Mortal Kombat. Be very careful with that one. All right, and then last but not least, and then I think we do have to wrap it up, guys, but uh, one more. Hopefully a quick question. Um, you guys had your spin-off magazine, EGM2. Do you have any insight on that? Is that just kind of a ploy to take over more market space with magazines, or what? Well, strangely enough, we were pumping out so much content, I think they wanted to break it out so we could just get more. They, they wanted to actually be able to put out a magazine every two weeks. And it was easier to do a second magazine with a second staff that would manage that. It was a completely different staff. There was a little overlap here and there, but it was mostly a, a totally different staff of was writing that. Uh, that allowed me to put out the magazine on a more frequent basis, but it was literally like a junior magazine, the main magazine, based on that. Just to, just to keep us getting out there as soon as, as much as possible. And Expert Gamer was born from YouTube, too, I think. Alright, well, and for an Asteroids fan, who wouldn't want an Atari copy of E.T.? So, alright, well, if you guys would all uh, assist me in thanking our guests, uh, Terry Minich and Ken Williams, for coming out today. And if you all... Thank you guys. Thank you. Yes, and thank you very much, gentlemen. And uh, if you all get a chance, uh, just head over to uh, GamingHistory101.com to check out the articles and whatnot. Remember, uh, forward slash MGC will have all those magazine archives I talked about. Uh, and we do have our podcast and all your favorite podcast services. Um, so thank you very much. All right, let's give them a round of applause. All right, coming up at 1 o'clock, we got Us versus Them, Gottlieb's amazing laser disc adventure. Be sure to stick around for that. While you're waiting, good time to order up some food. Come see Karen at the bar, order some food if you're thirsty. Get a drink. Make sure you take really good care of Karen here. Uh, and also, really if you ever have today. some interest, um, I, I have so, your email. I was going to possibly reach out to you. The, I was uh, uh, trying to do for some, uh, some interview Akuna. episodes just through Skype or something. So just uh, uh, it over your uh, experience, sponsor, you know, a more specific year, so experience. Sure so, the movie I don't know, getting into it and what it was like. Absolutely. Yeah, and definitely at your Well, thank you very much. I'm sure I'll see you around. Yeah, and I've seen you guys many times, but it was an honor. And we'll see you on the other side. So thank you very much.